Friends, grace and peace to you in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, my dad uh, earned, I guess, a, a trip to Hawaii for business. And he decided to take the whole family along with him, which we were thrilled about, right? My brother and I couldn't wait. It would, it would have been like the coolest adventure we'd ever been on, the farthest we'd ever traveled. It was really awesome. And Hawaii is this, like, dreamy paradise, you know, islands in the middle of the ocean. You know, we'd, we'd seen Baywatch, so there was that, right? Like, we were really, really excited about going on this trip. Now, nobody told us, and I guess we didn't ask, but we were going to Hawaii in the middle of monsoon season. Which meant that when we arrived, indeed, some wonderful locals uh, presented us with lays for around our necks, but they also handed us State Farm issue rain ponchos and umbrellas because it was raining a lot. And it rained. And it rained. And it rained. And it never stopped the whole time we were there. And it turns out Hawaii is a lot less fun when it's raining all the time. (laughs) We went to the beach a few times, but ironically, we really didn't like being wet at the beach, right? It was kind of uncomfortable and weird. And and we drove up to the top of a volcano, but it was so cloudy, we literally couldn't see anything at all. It was just a long drive that induced car sickness. We played a lot of cards in the hotel room. The only thing about Hawaii that lived up to expectations was the macadamia nuts, and that's because the only way to ruin a macadamia nut is to read the nutritional facts, right? I'm sure that, in retrospect, it was a fun time at times and a nice family adventure, but we were kids, right? And so every day, my brother and I said, Hawaii is dumb. (laughs) So the people of God are in exile in Babylon, a thousand miles from home, dreaming, pining for the city of Jerusalem, that place they called home, that shining city on a hill that had been utterly destroyed by the Babylonians and with it Solomon's temple. They wanted nothing more than to go back home, to be in Jerusalem again. They raised children in exile. And as they raised those children, those kids cut their teeth on stories of the glories of Jerusalem. They couldn't wait to see this place that they had only seen in their dreams as it was described by their parents and their grandparents. When all of a sudden, a new empire and a new emperor arose, and he allowed that the people could go back home. Now, can you imagine crossing the desert, that band of travelers, with visions of what they would see when they arrived home? Finally, after after waiting in exile, pining for Jerusalem, they were on their way back. God had delivered them. Those kids who'd never seen it but in their dreams couldn't wait to see this beautiful city that God had given to them as their capital, as the center of the heart of the people. But as it turns out, while they were in exile in Babylon, nobody came along with a wand and magically fixed Jerusalem up. And so when they arrived back in Jerusalem, it was a pile of stinking rubble. The temple, a pile of unrecognizable stones, their homes nowhere to be found, 
the market where once they bought and sold and fell in love and laughed and played, nothing but splinters and rotten meal. Can you imagine those kids looking around at this stinking heap of trash and saying, this is Jerusalem? This is what we've been so excited about? I mean, say what you will about Babylon, but at least we had beds and food and shelter. Jerusalem is dumb. Has that ever happened to you? You have dreams or visions of what your life might look like or a place that you remember fondly that you might someday get to go back to a, a, a fairyland of happily ever after that you build anticipation for. And then you get there and this ain't what I was hoping. And it's into that disappointment that the prophet who takes the name Isaiah pours these words of hope into a heartbroken people. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, good news, to the poor, to the captives, to the blind, to the oppressed, to those who are brokenhearted and mourning in Zion. Good news for righteousness. Praise will will shoot up like wild grass from the ground, a a garden putting forth its sprouts in due season. Good news. Can you imagine hearing those words and looking around and thinking, really? Where? But that's what hope is, right? You see... To be hopeful is not to live in a world that's already a fairyland of nothing but joy, wrapped in tinsel and ringing jingle bells. Hope is about being in those dark and broken-hearted places and trusting that indeed dawn will come, that indeed joy will come in the morning, that the world will indeed continue to turn. And God, who has promised true joy, will keep God's promise. That's what it means to be hopeful. It's not to pretend that we already live in the beautiful land. But it's to be a people who are gathered in darkness, looking for little flashes of light, a splash of pink, a promise that maybe, just maybe, the sun will indeed rise. This last week I had the privilege of attending a Blue Christmas worship service. I've never been to one of these. It's kind of a growing trend around here. A colleague invited me to check it out. It's a really interesting thing. It's not an Elvis Presley song, although I think that may have been what inspired it. But it is a Christmas service. They tell the Christmas story and sing Christmas songs. But it is intentionally a, a time and a space that is carved out for people for whom this season is not overflowing with tinsel and light and all the joy that our culture tells us this season is supposed to look like. It's for folks for whom this season is hard. Maybe just this year, maybe every year. Folks who are lonely, folks who are emerging from a divorce, maybe had a bad diagnosis this year, or 
living with grief or lost a job, folks who just don't feel the happy-go-lucky, frosty-the-snowman winter wonderland that everybody's talking about. And then it was a beautiful service, and I remember I was looking around at the folks who were gathered this last Tuesday and thinking to myself, this isn't a blue Christmas. This is just Christmas. This is what this story is about. Christmas isn't some pretend fairyland where everything's already awesome. It's a story of homeless refugees hundreds of miles from home, depending on the kindness of strangers for welcome, for a place to rest. It's a baby born, vulnerable and fragile, in the middle of nowhere, in a barn. And yet somehow believing that in that child is born the very hope and life and joy of the world. That's what Christmas is all about. And that's what hope looks like. Christmas is a burst of light in the middle of the darkness. After all, the dawn only brings such joy to people who know what it is to endure the long, dark night of the soul. Who know what it is to have their hearts broken wide open. And to pray and to hope that somehow joy will come in the morning and that God will bind up the brokenhearted. That's hope. As I was, you know, after the, the service on Tuesday, they, they had lunch for us, and I was chatting with some of the folks who had been there. One woman just found out a few weeks ago she has inoperable, incurable, untreatable cancer. Another woman I was chatting with lost her husband 15 years ago. 15 Christmases. Now, as I was talking to her, I thought to myself, I really hope this is not the case. But I wonder if someone in her life, this year, last year, someone, friend, family, maybe even a not-so-good pastor, has ever said to her, you know, it's been 15 years. Shouldn't you be over it by now? Aren't you through this yet? I think that's why those services exist, because there are a lot of assumptions that you just can't grieve that long, that we should be able to process this and get through, but that's not how grief works. Just ask the people of Israel. That's not how hope and healing work, because hope and healing are just as unique and individual as the grief to which they are addressed. Grief doesn't look like a a long line with an arrow at the end, a a predictable process by which we somehow get our way to the promised land of happiness and joy. For most people, grief looks a lot more like a Rorschach ink blot or a scattershot of a shotgun blast, that it comes and it goes in waves and in triggers and moments, and that in each of those times, we cling to hope. But it doesn't help to be told that we're already living in joy when it doesn't feel like that. And that's what I value about how deeply natural the scriptures are. If if you pay attention from Genesis to Revelation, all throughout scripture, there are constantly images, signs, symbols, stories about Nature, about growing things, about trees, about fruit, about vines and vineyards, about wheat and harvest, about flowers, 
because our ancestors were farmers. And anyone who lives close to the soil knows what it is to hope, knows that there is risk in there, knows that there is variety in that, that there is a a certain predictability, perhaps at times, to the harvest, to the sowing and the reaping. But there are also random volunteer tomatoes coming out of compost heaps, flowers that burst on the site in places you never thought to look. And there are trees. In our reading today from Isaiah, there's lots of this natural imagery. The oaks of righteousness, the soil putting forth its shoots, the garden bringing forth its growth. And I think that's how hope works. There are times when hope is a a predictable thing, where we know that next week there will be four candles and then a fifth, and we will gather and we'll sing Silent Night and the place will be bursting with people and candles and warmth and joy. But sometimes hope is like planting a tree, too. I don't know if you've ever planted a tree, but it is a, a practice in faith and hopefulness. Because you're not going to be around to see it grow up. Planting an oak tree is investing in a a future of shade that you will never enjoy, but your grandchildren will. And that's what hope looks like. That's what it looks like to, to long for something that is not yet seen. To put your ear close to the soil and trust that beneath the surface of that cracked earth there is a mystery and a magic unfolding that will indeed bring forth life someday. And as we do that work, we do it together. We gather like those folks last Tuesday. We gather like those who stood in the rubble of Jerusalem, and we cling to one another, and we we share those heartbreaks with each other, and we hold each other's stories, and we use one another to, to look for those signs of light and life. To look for the little tiny buds of green just barely beginning to burst, perhaps even through the snow. And as we do that, as we gather in this place, as people, some of whom are heartbroken and some of whom are filled with joy, and we share that life together, we see in water and in wine and in wheat and in word of promise that indeed, All evidence at times to the contrary, indeed, by God's promise and God's grace alone, indeed, joy comes in the morning and hope springs eternal. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.